Hi, Casey here. Before we start, our team at Pass Blue wants you to know that we're a nonprofit website and we depend on your generous donations to tell stories about the UN. And time is running out to double your donation to Pass Blue. Until December 31st, the national matching gift campaign Newsmatch will double your donation up to $1,000. For a nonprofit newsroom like us, this is a big deal and will help us report exclusive stories and beef up our reporting crew at the UN every day. The type of journalism we do that puts accountability first cannot wait, because if we don't tell these stories, who will? Hi, I'm Casey Candela. And I'm Stephanie Fillion, and welcome to Unscripted. Today, we look at how China's rise on the world stage is playing out at the United Nations. And we talk with Rosemary DiCarlo about being the top U.S. citizen working at the U.N. and what it's like to visit four countries in nine days. This is the last unscripted episode of 2019. We're a podcast taking you inside the United Nations and beyond the scripted debates to the people at the heart of it all, the diplomats and the reporters covering them. Later on the show, we'll have an exclusive interview with Rosemary DiCarlo, the UN Undersecretary General for the new Department of Political and Peacebuilding Affairs. But before that, we're gonna talk about a country that's had a pretty big year in global affairs, China. Not only has China finally just agreed to a phase one trade deal with the U.S., but recent documents revealed or confirmed China's detention of an approximately one million people of Muslim minority, the Uyghurs, in the province of Xinjiang. But a lot has been said about China's growing influence internationally as well. So we wanted to assess how China's rise translates into the U.N. system. Over the last decade at least, all eyes have been on China's rise, transforming the world's balance of power from a bipolar struggle between Russia and the United States into a multipolar world, with China becoming more and more influential. At the UN, China has always been a major player, being a permanent five member of the Security Council, which gives them veto power. Before its recent transcendence globally, it was known to be a relatively quiet member of the council, hiding behind vaguely worded speeches that were prone to using the word peace in nearly every document. But with the United States significantly cutting the amount of money it gives to the UN's regular budget, and the peacekeeping budget as well, the current U.S. administration has not been prioritizing the U.N. as much as former administrations, enabling China to fill some of that ever-widening gap and taking a more prominent place at the U.N. more openly. One example is China's new ambassador to the U.N., Zhang Jun. His predecessors were known to be quite quiet and not to talk to the press, while Ambassador Jun has already met with some reporters privately and even joked on the council. Listen to what he said about his American counterpart at the White House earlier in December. Um, we are happy to see that uh, Kelly Craft is uh, leading us in December. Yes. Uh, she's really doing a great job. Uh, she asked me to say so. <laughs> <laughs> is there a few good ones like that in the council and outside it? Ambassador June is a seasoned diplomat, having served as Assistant Minister of Foreign Affairs and also at the UN earlier in his career. He was appointed in June at the timing of Beijing's and such an extroverted and outspoken ambassador doesn't seem to be a coincidence. 
Well, he sure does add a special touch to UN meetings where procedures and scripts tend to prevail. And Stephanie, for a recent article, you looked at the larger picture of what the ambassador is doing at the UN on Beijing's behalf. You analyzed two declarations in the UN Human Rights Committee of the General Assembly to see how China is trying to use its economic and political clout here at the UN in New York City. China, after all, is now the second largest financial donor to UN peacekeeping after the United States. The U.S. is slated to give almost twice as much as China, but hasn't paid several hundred million dollars. So as we know, China has been investing and lending money internationally to many countries. I mean, almost everywhere. But for years, China pitched its investment as having no strings attached politically. That's why many countries, especially in Africa, like dealing with China. China was giving money without asking much in return, except to develop much-needed infrastructure in Africa and elsewhere, like Central Asia and Pakistan. And China still isn't asking for much in return, but there are a few issues that it really cares about and doesn't want other countries interfering with. Some major examples include the status of Hong Kong and Taiwan, but Beijing can't seem to stop press coverage and international attention on the human rights situation in Xinjiang. And in October, the situation was brought to the UN Third Committee on Human Rights. And looking at what happened there shows how China has gone from quiet to flexing its might more openly at the UN by asking, sometimes strong-arming, countries to take their side. So Stephanie, what happened publicly in the committee? How did the delegates act when the issue was brought up? There was a drastic division among member states in terms of how they perceived China's actions on human rights. On this issue, a group of 23 mostly Western countries, including the UK, the US, Germany and France, denounced quite loudly China's behavior in Xinjiang, calling on the Chinese government to uphold its national laws and international obligations and commitments to respect human rights. So that's the Western take. What is the other perspective? It is basically that China's human rights record is exceptional. More than twice as many countries signed a Belarus-led declaration that some countries said was basically dictated by China that praised the country's human rights record, saying, and I quote, we commend China's remarkable achievements in the field of human rights by adhering to the people-centered development philosophy and protecting and promoting human rights through development. So by looking at the list of countries that backed this declaration, these are countries that don't have the best human rights record either. The list is on our website in Stephanie's story on passblue.com, but to name a few, Egypt, North Korea, and Venezuela. But some of the countries, like Serbia, raised eyebrows among UN observers. Stephanie, has the UN taken any other actions on this issue? Well, recently, the New York Times obtained exclusive documents confirming China's strategic forced detention of the minority to make them more Chinese. And it's becoming harder and harder internationally to deny it's happening. And I must say that even Western countries took a while to really speak up on this issue. 
The first common declaration made at the UN on this occurred in the Human Rights Council in Geneva last summer, where a group of countries wrote a letter to the UN High Commissioner on Human Rights, Michel Bachelet, to go to China and assess the situation on the ground. But let's take a look at the numbers. 23 countries signed the Western Declaration, while 53 signed the pro-China one, which means that of the UN's 193 members, a majority have decided to simply not say anything at all about the situation. That's correct. And when I looked at those third committee numbers, what struck me the most was that no country in Africa took a stance against China. Remember, at this point, only a handful of African countries have signed China's landmark Economic Belt and Road Initiative. And China's economic hand is becoming heavier and heavier on the continent. Stephanie, do you think China did some behind-the-scenes lobbying of African diplomats to prevent them from signing the Western Declaration? That's almost undeniable. I mean, I must say many African countries really didn't want to talk to us about this. But the ones who did confirmed that China is asking some favors for its investments in Africa. One African diplomat told us they were lobbied by both sides to join a statement, but they believed any statement was just not the right approach to the situation and that the way the Xinjiang issue was handled in the third committee session was overly politicized. But that China was definitely more aggressive and more threatening in its approach. And was Africa the only region to be lobbied over this? Not at all. Keep in mind that China has invested all over. I noticed that Greece hadn't signed either declaration, so I asked the ambassador, Maria Teofili, why she didn't take a stance. Part of the answer was that there was already an EU declaration on the matter. A declaration that, by the way, Greece tried to block in the past. But then she said that China was the only country that has showed confidence during the economic crisis, which sort of means that the decision was an economic one, not a political one, because China eased Greece's economic crisis by buying the country's largest port. And while behind-the-scenes lobbying for votes at the UN is something everyone does, this is an extraordinary example of China using its investments and loans abroad as political leverage. Yes, and the pro-China declaration shows how human rights standards can become blurry and even overshadowed by individual countries' economic interests. Stephanie, where else besides the Human Rights Committee has China's presence at the UN grown? Well, China is now the second largest financial contributor to peacekeeping and has the most peacekeepers in UN mission among the permanent five members. So China's prominence at the UN is sort of everywhere and likely to grow. Even in the Secretariat, only the UN chief on counterterrorism has visited the region of Xinjiang because China rationalizes its operations in the region as a fight against terrorism. The UN's High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michel Bachelet, has not visited and has no plans to currently. And that's something that infuriates many Western countries that are calling for Bachelet to go and assess the situation on the ground herself. Yes, but it's not only a human rights question. China's rise at the UN sort of challenges the Western dominance in the system. For example, earlier this year, the Secretary General appointed the first Chinese special envoy to the Great Lake regions of Africa, Yan Chia. So, as often, whenever a gap opens internationally, China is 
always happy to fill it. And the UN is a great playground for Beijing, especially with Washington paying less attention than usual to the world body. Well, that's something that we'll be watching especially closely at Pass Blue. Thank you so much, Stephanie. Now for the second segment of the episode. A few weeks ago, Pass Blue contributor Joanne Myers was able to meet with the UN's Undersecretary General for Political and Peacebuilding Affairs, Rosemary DiCarlo, on the 35th floor of the UN Secretariat in New York City. DiCarlo talked about the challenges of leading a new department, her career as a diplomat, and what it's like to be the highest-ranking American in the UN system right now. DiCarlo is a graduate of Brown University with a PhD in comparative literature and Slavic languages. She is also a Russia expert. She started her career at UNESCO and later moved to the U.S. State Department. During her time there, she served as Deputy Permanent Representative under Ambassador Susan Rice and became Acting U.S. Ambassador when Rice became National Security Advisor under President Obama. DiCarlo also served as Director of UN Affairs at the National Security Council in Washington. DiCarlo was able to fit us into her very busy schedule of meetings and international travel. Here are some highlights from the interview. Since the start of his term in 2017, Secretary General Guterres has advocated for advancing the careers of women. Women have traditionally been underrepresented in high offices at the UN, and Guterres has committed himself to gender parity in those positions. By appointing DiCarlo as the first woman to lead the newly created UN Department of Political and Peacebuilding Affairs, Guterres seems to be making good on his promise. So we asked Carlo, what has this experience been like for her? First of all, I, I really um, admire the Secretary General and his efforts to push forward the gender parity strategy. And he has a strategy and a policy here at headquarters, but also in the field. For me, uh, I was thrilled to take on this position. As you know, I did a lot of UN uh, work in my past uh, and was very happy to be in a position where I felt I could make a difference. Obviously, being the first female has its advantages, but it's also quite daunting. I think I was a novelty, to be honest, and I think uh, people have given me the benefit of the doubt. But I also know that it is just not about me and my success. It's about the success of all women who come after me. And so there is, I would say, uh, a burden, a heavy burden, uh, to make sure that I do justice to this position, that I also help many others who are trying to work their way up uh, to senior positions in the UN and elsewhere. Not only women, of course, men as well, but it is very important, I think, that I set a model for them at this point. As we said earlier, DiCarlo is the highest-ranking American at the UN. So we wanted to know how she navigates the UN, Washington, and the international community. Here's her answer. Well, first of all, it's different being on what I would say is the other side of the street. I used to work across the street at the U.S. Mission. But the change uh, from being a U.S. diplomat to an international civil servant was not a difficult one for me. I actually started out my career early on at UNESCO. I I started out right after grad school as uh, an international civil servant, moved uh, to a national service, 
uh, and now I'm back with the UN. And uh, I have to say that it's different. There is no question that it's different. Uh, we have to take into consideration the views of 193 member states. Uh, we also obviously uphold the charter and the principles on which this organization is based. There is a balancing act in very much of what we do in order to uh, work with all the sides to come together and have a consensus on issues. This job for me is challenging because it's the first time in my life I've dealt with the whole world. I've done various regions uh, as a U.S. diplomat in working at the U.S. mission to the U.N. I covered a lot of Security Council issues, but issues that came before the Council here, I'm dealing with the whole world, and it's a challenge. Coming back to women, while the Secretary General has placed more women in leadership positions, the UN itself, especially on issues of peace and security, has been slow in acting on civil society's concerns. Next year is the 20th anniversary of Resolution 1325, which was the first Security Council document acknowledging that women's roles and rights were threatened globally. 1325 requires that parties to a conflict ensure that women's rights aren't violated and that women have a role in the peace process. To date, only 80 countries have devised national action plans to carry out this agenda. And despite these commitments, some say women's rights and roles in peacebuilding are in peril. So we asked DiCarlo, what are the biggest obstacles to ensuring women are protected and play a role in peace and security? We have, we've made obviously progress in the last 20 years, uh, but we see some backtracking, which is most worrisome. Uh, we have the resolutions, we have the norms, we have the tools in place. We just need action now. We need implementation, and I think that is extremely important. We have challenges. Uh, we have challenges in many of the areas where my department and the envoys with whom I work, who are trying to resolve conflicts around the world, have a resistance to including women. But it is our policy at the UN to have substantial numbers of women in any peace process, in any negotiating situation. When we are leading in a process, we can make that happen more often than if we are just supporting another process. I'll give you an example, Syria. Special Envoy Gare Pedersen uh, launched the Constitutional Committee over a week ago uh, in Geneva. He ensured that 30% of the participation in that conference were women and will continue to do so. It is challenging, it is sometimes very challenging. We had a situation, Yemen, uh, when a year ago our envoy finally was able to get the warring parties to the table for an agreement for a ceasefire in Hodeida, could not get sufficient numbers of women in delegations, so we brought our own women. Uh, we had an advisory group that advised the special envoy on various aspects that pertain to women in the discussions. In my department, we issued recently a new policy on women, peace, and security. We are mandating that our special envoys and special representatives report on women's issues when they do their periodic reports to the Security Council, when they brief the Council. And we have made very clear that women's issues are important and made funds available for various kinds of activities to include women in not only peace processes but political processes in various countries. We also asked about her travel. It's been exciting, uh, I have to say. I've been to places I never thought I would travel to in my life. Uh, I've enjoyed it immensely. Um, but I also have learned 
how dangerous it can be to be a UN official in certain parts of the world. We've had attacks on our mission in Somalia twice. We had an attack recently on UN officials in Afghanistan. And I have to say that I truly admire my colleagues in the field who take on these very difficult jobs that are not only in difficult, let's say, living circumstances, but also very dangerous. It's been uh, a treat for me, to be honest, to be at the table with some leaders uh, around the world and having discussions on a range of issues. What I do find, and I think this is genuine, that the UN is welcome in many, many countries, in all of the countries that I visited thus far. And I think that is because we do our best uh, to try to accommodate the needs of the country in question. What I do do in every place that I visit, I, I do meet with civil society, uh, a lot of women's groups, uh, but even in uh, when it's a, a broader group, always uh, women who represent women's organizations are included. I have some hosts that are absolutely adamant that I see some of their society. I got to see the pyramids, which were lovely. They opened them up oh, wow. for me after five. <laughs> That's very uh, it was very special. It was lovely, and I think that you know showing respect for other societies and interests and in their cultures is is extremely important. That's our show. A very happy holiday to you, our listeners, and we hope you keep listening in 2020. This episode was produced by me, Casey Candela, and reported by Stephanie Fillion for Pass Blue, an independent women-led media site covering the United Nations and global affairs. Dulcie Leimbach is our editor, AI Digital created our podcast logo, and our music is by Poddington Bear. A lot happens at the UN beyond what we report in each episode of Unscripted, and Pass Blue is covering the important news, from women's rights to human rights to the Trump effect on the UN. For day-to-day coverage, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And to subscribe to our newsletter, go to PassBlue.com. PassBlue's in-depth and exclusive stories and this podcast are possible with the support of the Carnegie Corporation of New York, the New School, and listeners like you. To show your support, visit PassBlue's website and click Donate. Unscripted is available wherever you find podcasts. If you like today's show, please rate us on iTunes and share with all your friends.